Hi friends, it's your friendly neighborhood forensic toxicologist, Kevin. Science is about exploration, experiments, discovery, and asking questions, all of which comes naturally to all children. I loved science experiments as a child, and I know my kid does too. So I would like to take a second to introduce you to Mel Science. Mel Science is a subscription service that offers monthly science boxes, which combines hands-on experiments with VR and AR technologies to engage kids in studying science, engineering, technology, and math. This company is breaking the stereotype that science is boring, difficult, and only for certain types of people. So by committing to their strategy, Mel Science strives to make serious science accessible, interesting, and cool. Each box has a different theme and is targeted to a different age group. So there are boxes for 5 plus or 8 plus or 10 plus years old age groups. So just check out the link and promo code in the ToxCast show notes for 60% off the first box of any Mel Science monthly subscription. You heard that right. 60% off the first box of any Mel Science monthly subscription. The promo code to use is ToxCast. T-O-X-C-A-S-T. ToxCast. As a scientist, I would have loved to have a product like this from Mel Science when I was a young child. Again, check out the show notes for a link and promo code for 60% off the first monthly box of any Mel Science subscription. Again, the promo code to use is TOXCAST. Now, I think it's time to start the TOXCAST. Welcome back to Dose Makes the Poison, the TOXCAST. This is episode 21, Synthetic Cannabinoids and Bleeding. What is up with that? My name is Kevin, your host, friendly neighborhood forensic toxicologist. I hope you enjoyed episode 20, where I got a chance to sit down and chat with Dr. Justin Brower, who works in postmortem forensic toxicology and is writing a book on poisons. I've got more good interviews and chats like that one coming up soon, so stay tuned on that front. There will be more of things like that. I'm trying to talk to people from forensics and chemistry and toxicology, adjacent fields like medicine, journalism, and harm reduction as well. So again, stay tuned on that. There will be a lot more to come in the future. Anyways, like I said today, episode 21, we are talking about synthetic cannabinoids and bleeding. We've talked about cannabis on the ToxCast before, back in episode 17. But we have not really talked much about synthetic cannabinoids yet. At least I don't recall. So let's start there. Let's start with synthetic cannabinoids. What are they? Well, synthetic cannabinoids are a subset of what we call novel psychoactive substances, or NPSs. What you will hear them referred to as, or what I will call them as NPS, novel psychoactive substances. Basically, they are laboratory-derived substances which bind to cannabinoid receptors in the body. And it's really that simple, and then it's not. But briefly, these types of synthetic cannabinoid compounds act as cannabinoid receptor agonists. 
So remember, that is they bind to those cannabinoid receptors 1 and 2 in the body. Cannabinoid receptors 1 and 2 are also known as CB1 and CB2. So they bind to those receptors and they produce an effect. So if you remember, again, back a few episodes, we talked about cannabis and how it affects the body. We talked about the receptors, CB1 and CB2. CB1 receptors are found primarily in the central nervous system and are responsible for mediating the psychoactive effects of the cannabis plant. CB2 receptors are found primarily in the peripheral nervous system, the spleen, and the immune system. And they're thought to be involved with pain perception mediation and immunosuppression. So if you go back decades ago, there were many pharmaceutical companies and academic research groups looking for compounds that would bind preferentially to CB2 over CB1. They wanted to find compounds that had potential medical benefit where they were looking at CB2 activity without the psychoactivity or the CB1 activity. So examples of these types of synthetic cannabinoid compounds developed are from Dr. John Wayne Huffman's group at Clemson University. They were synthesizing a whole series of compounds appropriately named JWH after Huffman's initials, John Wayne Huffman, and they were numbered. So substances like JWH-18, JWH-73, JWH-210, the number signified the sequential order of the compounds developed. Abbott Labs developed a cannabinoid called UR-144. Pfizer developed ADB Fubinaca. So many of these synthetic cannabinoid compounds have legitimate history in pharmaceutical and academia. But as always, many of these compounds get formulated by clandestine chemists and they use this rational drug design to modify the chemical structures and make an entirely different yet kind of similar substance which has truly unknown or unproven pharmacology and toxicology. So if the pharmacodynamics of synthetic cannabinoids can usually be described as similar to a cannabis effect, but usually much more exaggerated. And then they can also usually be described as something very different than cannabis. So after use, you see the typical effects like poor coordination, slurred speech, sedation, tachycardia, and sometimes paranoia. But you also observe significant effects with hypertension, hyperthermia, agitation, delusions, hallucinations, psychosis, acute kidney and liver injuries, seizures, rhabdomyolysis, and even death from synthetic cannabinoids. Pharmacokinetics of these newly created compounds are really not known. And so aspects such as blood elimination half-life or volumes of distribution, urinary excretion profiles for the, these newly emerged synthetic cannabinoids, those things are not known and really won't be known for a while, if ever. So you're probably asking yourself, Kevin, these are laboratory chemicals. Why are people using them? Well, as is the norm these days, what's investigated in research eventually escapes the lab setting and finds themselves to the street for recreational use. So synthetic cannabinoids since about 2008, 2009, so we're looking at, what, 12, 13 years here or so, 
uh, have been sold as ingredients in herbal incenses, potpourri, smoking blends, uh, to be used as an alternative to cannabis. So that's briefly what synthetic cannabinoids are. And you probably at this point noticed I did not say that an effect of synthetic cannabinoids was bleeding. Because it isn't. But the episode is titled Synthetic Cannabinoids and Bleeding. So again, what is up with that? In March 2018, a few years ago, reports began to surface out of Chicago, Illinois, of users of synthetic cannabinoid products experiencing bleeding issues. Especially bleeding from the eyes and the ears, coughing up blood, having blood in the urine, bloody noses, bleeding gums. Pretty abnormal, right? I mean, you gotta think so. So can you imagine smoking a substance that you think will get you high, like cannabis, but then you start bleeding from orifices? Yeah, that's unexpected to say the least. So doctors in the hospital observed what they determined to be vitamin K-dependent severe coagulopathy in several patients, which is quite odd. As mentioned before, considering that synthetic cannabinoids were not thought to cause this. This phenomenon was consistent with likely exposure to a, uh, a 4-hydroxycoumarin substance, also sometimes known as a superwarfarin. Well, now we're going to have to go from synthetic cannabinoids to severe bleeding to describing what a superwarfarin is. So what are superwarfarins? Superwarfarins are a group of substances known as anticoagulants. They are highly, highly potent vitamin K antagonists in the body. And normally, in reality, they're used as rodenticides, or they're substances meant to kill rodents, such as mice and squirrels and chipmunks and voles and beavers. So you typically don't think of rodenticides, you think of rat poisons. That's what these things are. Superwarfarins are rat poisons. And examples of these superwarfarins are things like diphenacum, brodificum, flocumifen, and bromodialone. So again, these things are intended and used to kill rodents. But let's talk a second about how they cause their intended effects. Well, a substance such as brodificum or a superwarfarin inhibits the action of the vitamin K epoxide reductase enzyme in the body. That inhibition of that enzyme interferes with the recycling of vitamin K epoxide to vitamin K, which then ultimately results in a decrease in blood vitamin K, which is a problem because vitamin K is a very, very vital part of the synthesis of prothrombin or coagulation factor 2. Prothrombin is involved in the blood coagulation cascade, also known as blood clotting. Basically, low vitamin K means severely impacted blood clotting, which can result in profuse bleeding. Another effect of substances like brodificum is the increase in permeability of blood capillaries. So this leads to internal hemorrhaging, or basically when blood leaks from vessels, an individual can bleed internally progressively with time. So you've got a couple of things going on. You've got uh, the interfering with a blood coagulation or blood clotting, and then you have the increased permeability of blood capillaries, which can lead you to hemorrhage. So it's a bad, bad, bad thing. 
All of this is made worse because substances like brodofacum and, and these other superorphans are highly lipophilic, meaning they love fat tissue and they are sequestered in fat tissue. And these things have extremely, extremely slow elimination pathways from the body. For example, you remember half-life. We, we mentioned it already, elimination half-life. Uh, that's the amount of a substance to be reduced in half in the body. The biological half-life of brodofacum is 20 to 62 days. Bromodialone has a half-life of 3 to 24 days. Diphenacum has a half-life of 11 to 42 days. Flocumafin has a half-life of 7 or so days of what we know. And we like to say in forensic toxicology that most substances are detectable in the blood for about four to six half-lives. So just do the math there of how long these things are detectable in the body and stick around in the body. They stick around in the body for an extensive period, and in some cases, months and months. This isn't like a, a opioid drug that sticks around in your blood for several hours to maybe a day. These things stick around for weeks to months and months. LD50, lethal dose 50 to kill 50% of the population uh, for mammals is substantially less than one milligram per kilogram. So these things are very potent and they're very long acting and have uh, very wide windows of detection. So again, again, I'm going to reiterate that these things are potent substances with long durations of action and they can result in devastating effects in humans and animals. And after all, it's primarily only use is to kill warfarin-resistant rodents. So again, hence the name super warfarins. That's what they're used for. So get back to bleeding reports in 2018. On March 22nd, 2018, the first reports were made of patients reporting to emergency departments in Illinois with that unexplained bleeding and high international normalized ratios or INRs which indicates a clotting disorder. Uh, no person reported taking any prescription anticoagulants or any exposure to any rat poison or rodenticide. But they all reported using a synthetic cannabinoid product during the previous three days. Blood samples were taken for toxicology testing and sent to a lab for rodenticide identification at that point in time. And that was March 22nd that that news broke. By the end of April... There were a total of 155 patients identified in the hospitals. Four patients had died from bleeding events, very significant bleeding events. The most frequent reported sign was hematuria in 81% of cases. All patients reported bleeding from at least one site in the body. In all patients, INRs were elevated. In the end, in a report from the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, 81 cases had blood samples taken for toxicology testing, and all 81 were positive for brodofacum. After these reports, which were localized to Chicago and surrounding counties, 38 other patients were identified in 8 other states, and the CDC were continuing their investigation. Three people were eventually arrested in Chicago in connection to the contaminated synthetic cannabinoid products which were sold at, the, at their specific convenience store. Good case reports for these bleeding events exist. Um, uh, one 
was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Drs. Risen, Devgun, Meehan, Thompson, Van Bremen, and Daniel Nozel. Uh, in this case report, a previously healthy 26-year-old woman came to the emergency department after two days of bleeding. She was a chronic user of synthetic cannabinoids as a substitute for cannabis, and she was using that to avoid testing positive for THC for her work drug screens. She was treated with vitamin K, hospitalized for several days, was discharged on day five. She had to appear in the hospital clinic for the next two months. Her coagulopathy persisted for at least 62 days. Uh, she stopped coming into the hospital and the doctors were not able to follow up with her due to her moving out of state. Blood samples were sent in those specific cases um, and they were sent for testing and three rodenticides were found in her blood samples, brodificum, diphenicum, and bromodilone. They also identified the synthetic cannabinoids AMB Fubinaca, also known as FUB-AMB, and 5F-AMB-Panaca. Another case report published in the Toxicology Journal, uh, Clinical Toxicology. In 2018, doctors Riley, Sochet, Moser, and Lynch reported the case of a 25-year-old man who presented to the emergency department with several severe bleeding injuries, including gross hematuria, retroperitoneal hematomas, epistaxis, easy bruising, nausea, vomiting, cramping, weakness. He had no history of bleeding disorders and no occupational exposure to rodenticides. Acute kidney injury was observed. His INR was greater than 10 seconds. And testing revealed decreased activity of vitamin K-dependent factors. Blood samples taken in the hospital were positive for brodificum. So as of November 2018, there were 320 cases of severe coagulopathy and eight deaths, which stretched across Florida, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. But it's now 2022, so why are we talking about this three to four years later? Well, it's unfortunately happening again, or at least seems to be happening again. In December 2021, the Florida Poison Centers and Florida Department of Health alerted the public about a current outbreak of severe bleeding associated with synthetic cannabinoid use. Symptoms reported have include bruising, nosebleeds, bleeding gums, vomiting blood, blood in the urine and stool, heavy menstrual bleeding. The last reports I saw in the media said that approximately 40 people were hospitalized with the symptoms after using products they had purchased in the Tampa, Florida area. Since this is a relatively new development, there really isn't a lot of news to report outside of that. This hits at the fact that what is on the street is an unregulated supply. And with that unregulated supply, you can never really trust it. The specific substance may be the substance you were searching for, but there may also be contaminants or things added to it, whether that's on purpose or accidentally added to it. Always remember that these things are not prepared in pharmaceutical labs with a QA, QC, or quality assurance or quality control program. These are clandestine chemists. These are not pharmaceutical or laboratory chemists. Always remember that. Well, that's it for the episode. I hope you enjoyed this one. It is really a scary thing when you think about it. Contamination of a widely used product 
with something so toxicologically frightening as a super war for an anticoagulant. If there are any further developments, I'll keep you updated in the future episodes. If you like the ToxCast, please check us out on Twitter at ToxCast, on Facebook at the Dose Makes the Poison, the ToxCast podcast page, or my website, DoseMakesThePoison.com. Check out my Threadless shop at DoseMakesThePoison.Threadless.com, where you can pick up science and pop culture-inspired t-shirts, stickers, magnets, mugs, and other things. Any money I make from that directly supports the podcast, as well as my Poison Garden, which I'll be talking about more once spring rolls around. It's still kind of cold out, and um, I'm going to be growing some toxic and poisonous plants that I've never attempted to grow before. Um, So needless to say, I'm pretty excited about that. And lastly, don't forget that you can leave a review for the ToxCast on Apple Podcasts. That really does help with getting the podcast some exposure. So again, I'll see you next episode. Until next time, always remember to never practice toxicology in a vacuum.